how do we read Ecclesiastes Christocentrically? In a Christ-centered manner. In an Ecclesiastes series, we could easily fall into moralism. Moralism isn't bad. In fact, I want my kids to be moral. Morality isn't bad, it's just insufficient. A half century ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse posed an interesting question. He asked, what would Philadelphia be like if Satan took over for a day? I began to mentally unpack that. I'm imagining crime rates at an all-time high, uh, euthanizing all senior citizens, unthinkable corruption from law enforcement and those in politics, dirty streets, drunken sensual parties every night of the week, and the churches. The churches would be closed and burned to the ground. Barnhouse began to unpack what he thought Philadelphia would look like if Satan took over for a day. He said all the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. The pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches? Churches would be full but Christ would not be preached. Satan is not offended by a moral improvement plan. After all, morality can save you from jail, but only Christ can save you from hell. The secret to having a great Ecclesiastes series is to be mastered by certain convictions. One is that the Bible, all the Bible, points to Jesus. It's a hymn book. Not one you, you, you sing out of, but an H-I-M book, a hymn book. We want the hero of the Bible to be the hero of the sermon. And it's easy to preach Ecclesiastes and talk more about the Christian than the Christ. It's like taking people to second base but not taking them home. We want to slide into home with every sermon in Ecclesiastes. Christ-centered preaching from Ecclesiastes is not monolithic. It doesn't always look the same. I haven't been doing it the same way from every chapter. I've been preaching Christ in different ways and in different degrees. It's not formulaic. It's just been instinctive. My goal has not been to give you a, a wooden method for proclaiming Christ from the book. I think it's most fruitful when it's natural, as comfortable as an old t-shirt. Never a duty. Always a delight. We want to keep a finger on the text and an eye to Christ. Now, today's text poses a unique challenge to the Old Testament Christ-centered expositor. The content you are about to receive may be something you would expect in a finance seminar, not a Sunday morning worship service. In fact, you may think, wait a minute, Kyle, this is, this is good stuff. But it's not God's stuff. This is worldly wisdom, not godly wisdom. This is something I might expect from a seeker-sensitive church, not an expositional church. Well, you may start there, but you won't end there. I'm going to bring you home. I'll show you how all truth is God's truth, including the very practical financial truths that we find in this text. 
One of the pre-commitments of an expositor is that he doesn't skip texts. Not hard texts, but on the flip side, not practical texts either. We are in the 13th week of our Ecclesiastes study, and we all know by now the human author, Solomon. He's the richest man alive. He's a king. One of, if not, the most powerful men in the world at that time. And he is again instructing us, writing to us, emailing us. You could say tweeting to us. This section reads like a series of ancient tweets. Verse 1 is the main tweet. And the verses following are his thread explaining and elaborating on the original tweet. What he says in verse 1 is, it's, it's one of the most interesting and thought-provoking verses in the entire book. He says, verse 1, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Now this is a well-known wisdom statement in the book. But what in the world does it mean? Cast your bread upon the waters and you will find it after many days. I read someone I read someone say, keep casting your bread on the waters and then get ready to make sandwiches. Another person said, cast your bread upon the water and watch it come back buttered. <laughs> which, which is, you know, clever, but it makes absolutely no sense. At, at first reading, I'm picturing someone casting a loaf of, of Wonder Bread into the river. But it quickly becomes waterlogged and disintegrates into a thousand little pieces. So that's obviously not the type of bread being referred to because apparently this bread, after being placed into the river, floats around the bend and you can find it later. Uh, maybe it's California sourdough bread. You know that round, buoyant bread that if placed in water would simply go bobbing down the river. Now we know historically, unfortunate for Solomon, he didn't have either of these types of bread. He had thin, flat, hard, disc-shaped bread. Uh, more like our pita bread. You toss it into the water and then maybe it will show up in some distant day in a distant place when you need it. If you love the bread, set it free. If it comes back to you, you two were meant to be. Still, still just a little weird, right? Well, there, there's two possible meanings for this verse. And because I love you and, and my love language is charts, I uh, wanted to explain this in, in a chart. There's two options. Option number one refers to philanthropy. This verse could refer to philanthropy. Casting your bread then would be giving to charities, giving to the poor and oppressed, giving to those in need. Be generous and giving to the less fortunate and you will find it after many days. In fact, uh, there are many scholars who hold to this view. Uh, Jerome, uh, the, the Talmud, which is really a, a collection of writings. Martin Luther, Matthew Henry, Ligon Duncan, Chandler, Gibson, Longman. Lots of scholars hold to that. And, and their proof for this position is that there are non-inspired but reliable proverbs in the Middle East during this time that said similar things. You can find them in reading. Casting your bread to the poor. So that's option one. Option two is, is saying it refers to investing. Option two believes this likely points more to the realm of industry than the realm of philanthropy. 
In this case, you would not think of bread like the finished product, hot, fluffy, and ready to be buttered. But think of it more like the material to make bread, grain in big bags. You harvest your field, you labor, you collect it all in bags, and you put your, your bread on a ship, and you will see dividends return from your grain after many days. Uh, this is simply the ancient shipping business, foreign commerce. Ships on commercial voyages might be long delayed before any profit resulted, yet their goods had to be committed to the ship. Uh, the New English Bible translates this verse. Send your grain across the seas, and in time you will get a return. Now, there are many scholars that hold to this position. Uh, Walter Kaiser, Mark Dever, Sidney Gradanus, Alistair Begg, Riken, Tony Morita, Stephen Davey. And their proof for this position is that the Hebrew word to cast means to let loose or to send out, like a nautical term, uh, simply exporting and importing language. Uh, we know from 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 22, that Solomon did this very thing. Verse 22 in, in 1 Kings, I'll read it to you. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea. Once every three years, the fleet of ships used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. So Solomon sent out his goods on a ship. Someone traded with them in other places, and three years later, they brought back the dividends in the form of gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Now, uh, both of these positions are, are respectable. I, I hold to the second position because it's the, let's be frank, it's the right position. Um, but uh, Solomon is telling his readers to engage in international trade. Send out your grain or other produce to sea and then wait for your ship to return with fine goods from foreign lands. Now culturally at this time, what, what is going on? Well, Gerdanus says that the nation of Israel whom the teacher is addressing, has undergone major upheavals. The small agricultural country had become a bridge for international trade between Egypt and Asia, Europe. Mark Dever says what's happening here is the teacher is giving investment advice. He's simply saying, go for it. Cast your bread on the water. It will come back to you. It, it may take some time, but it's a good investment. You will never see a return on your investment until there is an investment. Cast your bread on the water. And that leads me to the first of, of three truths that I want to give you from this text. Truth number one. Take a gospel-motivated risk and expect it to pay off. Take a gospel-motivated risk and expect it to pay off. This is ad investing advice from the richest man on earth. Again, he's giving you this advice in tweet form. Short, pithy, memorable statements. Cast your bread on the waters. Now, I'm not an investment advisor. I have no desire to be that. I have no desire to bring leadership or investing advice into the pulpit. However, I have to preach the text. And this particular text is dealing with investing. So how shall we move from Solomon's investing advice to the message of Jesus Christ in the New Testament? Well, 
this is not unfamiliar to Jesus' parables. Did you realize that the majority of Jesus' parables are in a work-slash-investing context? Out of the 30 parables, 19 are set in an economic context. That's nearly two-thirds. In fact, Jesus gave a parable in Matthew 25. You, you can read it later for homework. But in the parable, a business mogul leaves for a long time. The text emphasizes he leaves for a long time and he gives money called talents to three people on his management staff. And they're all at different levels, like a, like a vice president, a middle division manager, and a personal assistant. He did not give the money to security guards. If he did that, he would want the exact, exact amount returned. Not a penny more, not a penny less. He gave his money to investors on his staff. And when the business mogul returned after a long time, the vice president had doubled the portion of investment he managed. Five talents to ten. Well done. And so did the mid-level manager. Two talents to four. He received, well done. But the personal assistant dug a hole and hid the investment entrusted to him out of fear of losing it all. Uh, you, you can read the parable later to see what happened to that guy who didn't cast his bread upon the waters. But I will tell you this much, he didn't receive a well done. Each person was given a talent, some bread, and, and that whole parable was in the context of the Lord's first and second coming. Jesus is the business mogul in the parable. And, and he's, he's clearly showing it will be a long time, but he will return. And while Jesus is away, we are to do our work with energy and faithfulness, burning our life up in productive service for Jesus, casting our bread on the water and not hiding it in our jackets. We must get rid of the play it safe mentality. That parable shows us that it is criminal to live cautiously. Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes, coupled with Jesus' parable, is a call to a venture of faith, to Christian resourcefulness. Christian, take a risk, expect a return. And honor God with the returns. Be a spiritual entrepreneur. Be a risk taker spiritually. An adventurer in the faith. It is better to fail in launching out than hugging your resources to your chest. The bread in this text is, is not just referring to money. It could refer, refer to other areas. Your bread is your opportunities and your responsibilities. Uh, your bread is your resources, your time, your money, your energy. God invites us to be venture capitalists for the kingdom. Don't, don't just read the Bible. Practice it. We refer, we refer to a lawyer's practice and a doctor's practice. Not because they're practicing on us. At least we hope not. We call it their practice because it's what they do. So how are you going to practice this verse? How are you going to cast your bread on the waters? I'm just telling you right now, if you've got bad blood pressure, this verse is, is bad for your blood pressure. Take, take a risk. How can you leverage your finances for God's kingdom? Cast your bread on the water. Uh, young people, uh, take chances. 
Don't play it safe. Live by William Carey's quote. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Launch out into the deep. That is truth number one. Let's look at truth number two. Hedge against disaster. To hedge against disaster, divide the risk. To hedge against disaster, divide the risk. Gradanus, that giant in biblical theology, says that this is an excellent preaching text for economic hard times. There's risk. You will lose some things. Verse 1, Solomon says, invest. <laughs> we respond, but there's risk. The element of, of water is out of our control. I mean, it, it just floats away. Solomon says in verse 2, take risks boldly, but wisely. The teacher wants us to take risks, but not foolish ones. So he cautions, verse 2, give a portion to seven, or even to eight. These Israelite readers were afraid of the risk. Gradanus says some Israelites had tried their hand at trading in business and and they lost. They picked a ship, and it never came in. So Solomon says, don't put all your goods on a single ship. Divide your goods over a large number of ships, seven or even eight. Make your investments widespread. Give your portion to seven or even to eight. You know what that is, right? That's Hebrew poetry. Escalating numbers is a kind of the equivalent in English of putting an exclamation point behind the sentence. But don't put all your eggs in one basket. Spread your eggs over multiple baskets, seven or even eight, exclamation point. Notice verse 2b. For you know not what disaster may happen on earth. <laughs> Why diversify? Because disaster may come. You must hedge against catastrophe. If, if this ship sinks over here, you're not devastated because the other seven are still floating. Invest broadly. Spread your investments where no one tragedy can wipe you out. You need the widest diversification possible within the guidelines of prudence because anything could happen to one ship. It could hit a reef. It could encounter a storm and be lost at sea. It could be seized by pirates. Jack Sparrow took control of your ship, and now you're bankrupt. The idea of investing, which is what we have in verses 1 and 2, the idea of investing is an idea that receives beautiful development in the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the point of your wealth if disaster hits next week and takes it all from you? Jesus taught, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I would add here, and where sinks ship, where ships sink. There we go. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus said that. 
in Matthew 6. That is a mandate, not a recommendation. You must invest in eternity. The only treasure that matters is the treasure you lay up in heaven. Put your grain on a ship that cannot sink. Don't put your eggs in an earthly basket. Put them in heavenly hands. Eggs never crack in God's hands. Bread is never wasted when placed in the hands of the divine. Now, one reason why Jesus' message blew through the ancient world like a breath of fresh air is that it brought hope. Hope that Solomon didn't fully realize. Why all this talk about wise investment? Well, because stewardship is worship. Stewardship is worship. We declare who our God is every time we make a money decision. To those of you who are not Christians, you may be thinking, man, this is, this is nice investment advice. I'm kind of, I'm, I am taking notes. This is great. Friend, Jesus taught that you could make the wisest investments on earth and still go to hell in eternity. Before you worry about obeying this investment advice from Solomon, you should obey the repentance advice from Jesus. Your sins separate you from a holy God. And you must fall down before this holy one and repent and beg for mercy, beg for salvation, beg for him to wash your sins away. That's truth number two. Truth number three. Possess a proper soul response. I'm just I'm laughing here because one of the elders is like, all my points are two words and yours are like paragraphs. But the, here's a paragraph for you. Um, truth number three. Possess a proper soul response to these twin truths. The uncertainties of life and the certainties of God's providence. 64 years ago, R.C. Sproul read verse 3 and was converted to Christ. Let's see what he read. Verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain... They empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. <laughs> I don't know what R.C. saw in that verse that I am not seeing. But it does demonstrate that the power of God to convert the sinner, even in the most obscure texts. Clouds were meaningful signals, especially in Palestine. When the heavy clouds blew in from the Mediterranean, people knew that the rainy season was upon them. And when the clouds are full, they empty rain on the earth. We, we observe this all the time. There are no exceptions. It is the laws of nature that we observe and, and we can count on. What we have here is a story of inevitability. A fallen tree is not going to get up. It's going to stay where it landed. Unless you're in some of them some imaginary Wizard of Oz land or, or some weird guardians of the galaxies. Trees fall, trees land, trees rot. It is the inevitability of God's law of nature. Verse 4, he who observes the wind 
will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. In this verse, you have a picture of a farmer who is too scared to sow seed because there is risk. He's watching the wind and waiting to sow because he's fearful the wind will kick up and blow away the seed. In ancient Palestine, the, the best time to sow was when there was no or very little wind. This allowed the farmers to scatter the seed evenly over the fields. So this farmer never sows the seed. His excuse? The weather will not cooperate. The first part of verse 4 deals with sowing. The second part of verse 4 deals with reaping. So there are two different seasons. He's, he's watching the clouds. Well, well, what if it rains during harvest and messes up the yield? Well, what if the clouds trick me and promise rain, but they do not deliver, and then I wait too long and miss peak harvest? He's living in fear of the weather, fear of failing. F farming is hard work. I don't speak from experience, but I've, I've read about it. Farming is hard work and unpredictable work. You cannot control the weather. Roland Murphy identifies this unit as composed of sayings about the uncertainty of human history. Despite the uncertainties of human history, Solomon urges action, not inaction. You see, there are different ways that you could respond to the uncertainties of life. What does a wrong soul response to the uncertainties of life look like? Well, you could allow fear of the unknown to stop you. Solomon is describing a farmer who has stopped sowing and stopped reaping because he can't guarantee success. There's an element of unknown, and it's rocking the farmer. The, the underlying note of uncertainty. We find the same phrase four times in the text, you do not know. We find it in verse 2. We find it in verse 5. We find it in verse 5 again. And then we find it in verse 6. You do not know. You do not know. You do not know. You do not know. There are unknowns in life. There are uncertainties in life. You can't predict the yield. You can't predict the investment. You can't predict reactions. Are you sitting around waiting for the perfect circumstances in life before you take a step forward? Solomon is effectively telling you if you're waiting for the perfect conditions, you will never act. The only sure thing is there are no sure things. If you're waiting for the perfect person, you will be single forever. If you're waiting for the perfect job, you will be unemployed forever. If you're waiting for the perfect timing, you will never act. You, you can obsess over the uncertainty so much that you will do nothing. Well, you, you know, once the job slows down, I'm going to start reading the Bible with my kids. Oh, I see. You need better conditions, right? That's all you need. Well, once this happens, I'm really going to start diving into my Bible study. Well, once this occurs, I'm, I'm, I'm really going to start using hospitality as a means of evangelism. Don't stare at the clouds. Get on with your life. 
There are a couple negative soul responses. The first is you could allow fear of the unknown to stop you. The second is you could allow fear of failure to paralyze you. One old commentator said that the readers lived in a world where they longed to have control and desired to predict what might happen. Many, no doubt, lived like the poor miser who hoarded his wealth only to lose it all. They lived in fear of what might happen in their fragile world. The farmer sees risk and it, it paralyzes him. He can't scatter seed. Friends, it is impossible to eliminate risk from your life. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. And there's probably 25% of you who need to hear this because your life is dominated by a paralyzing fear. God has designed life where there are risks involved in what we do. That is not meant to paralyze you. The unexpected events of life are not meant to make us curl up in the fetal position and pull back from living. Lock ourselves away from any sort of risk. Don't just stay inside because it's raining. Don't miss the adventures. Don't allow uncertainty to paralyze you. Don't allow the unknown or the unknowable to keep you from enjoying life. It's like, Kyle, I, Kyle, pff, psh, psh, psh. I'm enjoying life. Are you? Tell your face about it. But don't be paralyzed by the what-ifs of life. Go for it. Sow. Reap. If you waited until the risks were gone, you would have never learned to ride a bike or drive a car or get married or start a business. Solomon is saying at some point, you just have to put it out there be because you can never move forward until you take a risk. And even in the midst of uncertainty, you can trust God who promises to take care of you. Failure is not ultimate. And, and some of you sadly have a, have a really unhealthy view of failure. And I'm not interested in psychoanalyzing you and finding out where it came from. I just know it's there. Life will sometimes go smoothly. And sometimes it will not. Who knows what crops will fail, what trees will fall, what jobs will be eliminated who may be getting divorce papers, or what the doctor will say when he walks into the room. Don't let fear and panic set in about what might happen. When you approach the uncertainties of life, remember God's providence. We plan for the uncertain and the unknown future by walking daily with the Lord, and allowing his word to banish that unhealthy fear from our souls. Now, I, I'm not going to be afraid of the next thing that's coming around the corner. I'm not. I'm trusting in the providence of God. Francis of Assisi wrote a prayer that goes like this. Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference.
Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, that's not far from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. Providence will determine what you sow and what you reap, but go for it. Go ahead and do it. Uh, be a spiritual risk taker. Be an adventurer in the faith. Uh, there's an opportunity to take an overseas mission trip. Oh, but, but flying intimidates me. In third world countries, they have diseases. <laughs> okay, then, just stare at the clouds instead of casting your bread on the water. Well, there's an opportunity to witness to a friend. Oh, but it may turn awkward. He may get offended. Okay, just keep the seed in the bag and look for perfect conditions. I'm going to give you two questions to ask this afternoon over your lunch table. Just to spark conversation. Question number one. Do you shelter yourself from fear of failure? Do you shelter yourself from fear of failure by having space only for the predictable in your life? Question number two. Are anxiety and fear robbing you from stepping out on faith. How could you change this? You could respond to the uncertainties of life by allowing fear of the unknown to stop you or fear of failure to paralyze you. Or thirdly, you could allow the uncertainties of life to make you lazy. The farmer in our story can always find an excuse for doing nothing. For not sowing and for not reaping. Unpredictable. And hard things happen. But it's no excuse for not working. Stop making excuses. Go, go on and get busy with what you should be doing. Don't be a lazy bones. Let the gospel turn your lazy bones into busy bones. It's a song that my kids sing in the car. It's great theology. Quit making excuses for your laziness. Well, it's, it's the weather. It's the job market. It's the, the, you name it. Some people use the mysterious work of God as an excuse for giving up on their work. There are other ways as well. Uh, well, Kyle, my, my time of sewing is over. I'm retired. So you're just going to buy a house in Florida and spend the rest of your days in the land of the newlywed and the nearly dead? D don't let your hands grow idle in retirement. You still have strength to sow. You still have energy, though fleeting, energy to give. Don't stop casting your bread on the water. God put you on earth to plant seeds. Thunderclouds are going to come and go. Deal with it. But it shouldn't stop you from finding unique times and creative ways to sow. Now let's continue in the text here, verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 and 6 are where I'm pulling the certainties of God's providence aspect. Now notice what Solomon cites to prove this, verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones, 
Let's pause there for a moment. Bones is the same word used in other passages for embryo or developing life. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Just as you'll never understand the mystery of life forming, you'll never understand the mystery of how God makes things work. There's still such divine mystery in how a child grows in a mother's womb. In ancient times, they didn't have a clue. We know more than Solomon knew about the growth of a child from conception to birth. But there's still mystery. Amazing mystery. We can get a a 3D ultrasound image of a baby in the womb. But we don't really know how the cells divide at just the right time and just the right ways so that this part is a toe and this part is an ear. We still can't explain how God imparts to that fertilized egg the animating essence called immortal life. Little side note here. A A child in the womb is a person. Scripture clearly states the baby has a living spirit. Uh, You non-Christians, your parents may not have planned you. But God did. It wasn't random. The preacher says that in all the work of humankind, there are certain things that only God knows how to do. We manage, but God actually makes. So you've got to realize the limitations of your understanding. You're limited in your understanding of even temporal things. (laughs) Remember that when you're trying to think out what God is doing in his secret providence. Nothing in this world is outside of God's control. The storms that sink the ships, the clouds that rain on the earth, the trees that fall in the forest, the winds that blow, the crops that grow, the life breath for babies. God makes everything. So from the womb to the tomb, your life is filled with the mystery of God at work. Verse 6. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. Now let's stop there. This could be translated in the morning until the evening, simply referring to a good day's work, which I think is what's happening. It's a mirrorism, not two periods of sowing, but a whole day of sowing. It's an idiom of completeness. And and a very important verse, I don't want you to miss the end of verse 6. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that. Whether both alike will be good. Think of the risk that farmers take when they sow their seed. They sow in hope, but they cannot be certain of getting a good crop. There may be too much rain or too little. There may be hail or a plague of locusts. This verse is a reminder that God is the Lord of the harvest. Let God take care of his mysteries, and you take care of your work. You will never reap if you never sow. 
Live boldly and creatively. Try something new. What God will do, you never know. But you will never reap if you never sow. Sometimes we grow weary when we don't see immediate results. But we live by patient faith. Sow the seed and trust God. Throw the bags of grain on the ship and trust God. Since we do not know what God will prosper, use every opportunity to work boldly and wisely. Now, in applications, I want to just give you two sweeping applications. Just summary applications over the entire six verses. The first application is this. Your unhealthy, paralyzing fears often make no sense at all and will rob you of Christ's joy. I read after a pastor last week who pointed out that it's safer to fly than to drive. We all know that. Statistics show this every year. Yet Betty Lou, I'm not talking about anyone in our church, I just made that name up. Yet Betty Lou is terrified to fly. She has so much anxiety over flying. Yet every day she will pop in her car with no worries whatsoever. She will text her friends while driving. She will go over the posted speed limit. She'll upload a picture on Instagram of herself driving while holding a coffee from Starbucks. And now look, some of you are like, I I have a fear of flying and and I'm feeling personally attacked right now. Um, I'm just illustrating something, all right? Send your complaints to the complaint department. I just bought a brand new trash can for the lobby, and that's the new complaint department. (laughs) All right, here's here's my point. There are obvious risks you face every day, and you face them without a thought, without anxiety, without stress. You know why you're not succumbing to those other very real risks? Because you've simply learned to live life in spite of them. Now, God's not calling us to be unwise. Uh, Today we have a virus, okay? There's problems with it. We should be careful, but at the same time, it could easily become an excuse to do nothing. Can't get out of the house, can't get to the people of God, can't call someone, have to live in seclusion. There is a healthy fear of a virus. And then there's an unhealthy obsession with a virus. Let me switch examples since I know that one's so popular. When we implemented security for this church building, we had to walk through some risk assessments. Uh, Should we keep this door locked? Well, what about those doors over there? Uh, How are we going to cover both buildings? And all those were good things, and they needed to be thought through. But with every door we locked, we decreased the risk. Let's say we have 10 doors into this building, where the more we locked, the less, the less risk there was. You know how to avoid all risks? You know how to eliminate all risks? Lock every door and shut the corporate gatherings down. Now, why aren't we doing that? Because all of life has risks. The gathering is more weighty than the risks. We are in a very 
a very anxious society. We are in a very, as, as they used to say it in my home state of North Carolina, we're in a very, my nerves are tore up society. We live in one of the safest places on earth. In one of the safest countries in the history of the world. Yet we've never been more scared, anxious, and worried. The problem is not the risks. The problem is our view of God. We aren't valuing him the way we should value him. And it's causing us to overvalue dangers. Your view of risk is too big. Your view of God is too small. So with our second application, let's work to correct that. Application number two. You will face many uncertainties. God never will. God sees things as certain. Let's take a survey. Uh, how many of you have ever watched the History Channel? You've done some research. Okay, there you go. Uh, how many of you have ever watched the Nightly News? Would you raise your hand? There's a lot of truth coming from there. Uh, f- for God, everything is the History Channel. Nothing is the Nightly News. Now, for those of you who don't like nightly news or history, uh, how many of you have ever watched ESPN? That's good. Those are the good Christians. Look around, people. Look around. Strong believers. Get under them and be discipled. All right, there's, there's another show that's not ESPN. It's not live sports. It's called ESPN Classics. For God, everything is ESPN Classics. Personally, I never watch ESPN Classics because the game has already happened I already know who won. Nothing hangs in the balance for me. I know the winner already. I know the final score. Let's carry that argument over. The same is true for God. He watches the history of nations like I watch ESPN classics. Nothing is hanging in the balance. He doesn't ask what will the score be. It's all the history channel to him. God doesn't see the future as open uncertain he sees it as closed and certain God knows the risks you face they are not uncertain to him he knows them front to back and inside and out view the uncertainties of life through the lens of God's certainties Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.